0: You're listening to the magnum version of the Savage Love Cast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Love
3: Cast. So if you're a regular listener and you do as I would like all of you to do and commit every show to memory. You might remember the Jill Stein rant a few months ago. Somebody asked a question about whether I would support the Greens and I kind of blew up about Jill Stein and the Greens and I dropped a lot of F-bombs as I sometimes do when I get passionate about politics and somebody thought it would be a good idea to take that little clip from my podcast to make a YouTube video out of it and somebody else thought it would be a good idea to just transcribe that rant and put it up on the internet and this week, months after I blew up, I think it was in May that I blew up that I answered that question, it suddenly went crazy viral. And the Greens spent the week of the Republican National Convention attacking not Donald Trump, but me, because I am I am the real threat to the country and I am the asshole out there. The week of the Republican National Convention, the Greens were coming for not America's fascists, but America's potty mouth sex advice columnists. They want you to know the greens contra my point that they aren't just running some feces flinging shit bag for president. Every four years, they run candidates up and down from dog catcher on up. And they advise people to go to their website to see all of the candidates they're running. And I went and it's not a very well organized website and you can't find a, a list that numbers them. So I had to count them by hand they're running 117 candidates in this cycle. So not hundreds plural as they claim, but hundred and change singular. And 117 that's a, you know, up there in the extremely low triple digits. That's not nothing, but there are 520,000 more than a half a million elected offices in the United States, which means the Greens are running candidates in 0.02% of them. They have 100-ish elected officials across the United States, if you count things like water boards and trash recycling advisory boards and neighborhood councils, which that last one, neighborhood councils, no one really counts those. They have no members of Congress, no senators, not a single member of single state legislature anywhere in the United States, no governors, not a single mayor of a big city. And this showing 117 candidates, these elected officials that they claim to have isn't a word pathetic and my point stands you don't make the leap from dominating the waterboard in marin county california to the presidency of the united states in a single cycle you gotta build a party the greens are in this election cycle and maybe they'll grow up and become a real political party one day just like pinocchio became a real boy one day they're just fucking trolls and i know i shouldn't feed them but just a couple more minutes please indulge me because this tweet that I want to share with you came up in the context of how mean I am being to the Greens. Ovo tweeted, Dan, you're badgering, by your count, a small voter block while some of your listeners slash readers don't bother to vote at all, cajole these people to get off their rumps and vote. Because what I don't do here at the Savage Lovecast is devote a lot of time to importuning people to register and vote. Ofo claims he's a listener, but I have to wonder, because as someone else pointed out on Twitter, I talk about voting here on my sex podcast a whole lot more than I talk about fisting. In my defense, voting is something all adults can and should do. It's relatively easy and always a painless process. Fisting, on the other hand, only appeals to a small number of adults. Not all of them gay men. Vaginal fisting is a thing. Google it. But Google it at work just to be safe. You don't want to ruin your home computer. And it's messy fisting as opposed to voting. Voting, really simple, clean. You just need a pen here in Washington State to do it. And fisting as opposed to voting is messy, and I've been told it can involve pain when done incorrectly or done ineptly. Always be sure to remove that wedding ring, trim those fingernails, and take off your wristwatch. Why talk so much about voting on a sex and relationship advice podcast? Why not just stick to sex? Because we don't have that option. If you're paying attention and you're doing a a sex show, you don't have the option of ignoring politics or politicians because politicians and politics are all up in our sex all the time. From trying to prevent the introduction of the HPV vaccine to trying to block women's reproductive choices to trying to prevent people who would like to marry a partner and person of the same sex from marrying that person or now with the GOP platform coming after marriage equality, staying married to the person they may have already married. You have the GOP and their platform declaring porn a public health crisis. You have them, the Republicans, going after Americans on where they pee and when they pee and whether they're allowed to pee where other people are allowed to pee. Yeah, politics are all up in our sex and relationship and gender business and we can't, over here in sex and relationship and gender advice podcast land, just ignore them and hope they go away. We have to vote them out to make them go away. So a certain amount of my sex podcast is going to be devoted to the topic of voting and there's a fast forward button on your podcast app most of them so if you already agree with me and you don't need to hear it you can just skip ahead 15 seconds at a time or if you just want to come for the sex you can skip ahead and get to the sex relatively quickly one last political note before we get to the sex The Democratic National Convention kicks off today on Monday. It's Monday when I'm recording this. We'll be deep into it tomorrow, probably by the time you're listening to it. And at a breakfast rally this morning for California delegates, calls for the party to unite were met with boos and calls to elect Hillary Clinton. Also met with boos. Hillary Clinton, of course, is the Democratic nominee. And it seems that some Democratic delegates don't want her to win, which means they want... Who to win exactly? What's our other choice? Our real choice, not our fantasy land choice? Oh, that would be Cheeto Jesus, the circus peanut fascist, as Anna Marie Cox described him on Real Time this week, which I think nails it. So it seems that at least some Democrats are for disunity and for putting circus peanut fascist Jesus fuckface in the White House. And this distresses me. And we have three more months before the elections. We will probably circle back to this once or twice more in the next three months. But I promise you, it will not be all we talk about because it is not all you are interested in. And it is not all I am interested in. All right. Coming up on today's podcast, tons of your questions. And on the magnum, two guests who have nothing to say to us about politics. We have the star and the director of Tickled, the amazing new documentary about this creepy Tickle fetish scene and there's something creepy about a tickle fetish, but there's something creepy about the particular chunk of the tickle fetish scene online that they explore. It's a fascinating conversation. And also Eric Kleinenberg, co-author of Modern Love and author of Living Alone, here to talk to us about vasectomy and other choices. Coming right up.
4: Hi, Dan. I am a bi-female in my late 30s, recently divorced about a year ago in my first relationship since with someone that I absolutely adore. This guy, I met him about eight months ago, and it's been a, a marvelous relationship. Um, we just get each other on so many levels. I've started spending more time at his place and helping out with his dog, and which he co-parents with his ex. Now, the best thing is, is that because they're co-parenting, the ex spends a lot of time at his house practically every day, Um, and that's okay. However, every time I come over, I find things there that are just unnerving, Um, writing on the mirrors with hearts was one of the things. Um, The latest one was um, a box of love letters and intimate pictures uh, left on top of the kitchen counter, and um, every time I encounter these things, it just triggers a lot of anxiety, and I imagine, you know, their intimate life, and it's making me a little cuckoo. My question is, am I being unreasonable um, to get upset when I find all these um, leftovers in the household? Is this something that I should even address? I, I have actually met the ex, and we get along pretty okay. It's just when I run into these You know, things that are just carelessly left behind, um, tags from uh, Victoria's Secret, just things that are very unnerving. Is this something to address with either of them? Or is it, you know, time to take a step back? And um, also, maybe I'm just overreacting. I I just get these really horrible reactions. You know, my heart starts beating, my heart's beating right now. My mouth gets dry, and um, maybe I have to do some work on myself.
3: Okay. First things first. We don't parent our dogs. We own them and we take care of them, but it ain't parenting. Dogs are not children. And I say this as the reluctant parent of two dogs. Dogs ain't children and children ain't dogs. You don't parent dogs. You own them and you look after them and you take care of them and you pick their shit up off the ground. If dogs were children, we would have them institutionalized, but because they're dogs, Hairy and smelly, you never get any smarter, and you have to pick their shit up off the ground forever. We love them. I don't understand the dog thing, even as I own two dogs. All right, that out of the way, off my chest. I want to know where your boyfriend is on this, on the behavior of his ex, because it's creepy and inappropriate, and it is obviously meant to antagonize you. If he has no interest in getting back together with her, if... He thinks this is kind of pathetic and ridiculous and he can't see that leaving all of this stuff strewn about his apartment or his house for his new girlfriend to find is his ex's way of successfully getting under his new girlfriend's skin and trying to come between him and his new girlfriend and he doesn't take any steps to address this. That's a problem. You have two problems here. The ex is trying to antagonize you. And even if her mode of antagonizing, even if her strategy to antagonize you wasn't so effective, just the fact that she was attempting to antagonize you is itself antagonizing. And he has to see that and he has to address it. And he has to be the one who goes to his ex and says, knock it the fuck off. It is over. We will always have our memories, but I don't want memories written on mirrors in my house or strewn around my apartment. It is inconsiderate. Not just of my new girlfriend, but of me, of where we put this relationship, where we came to. We came to an end, and it is over. And you continuing to grieve it in this aggressive bunny boiler, 40-year-old pop culture reference way, is a co-parenting doggy deal breaker. And I will have those fucking dogs put down if that's the only way I can get you out of my life. Understood? Or I will drop them off at a vet, or I will adopt them out, or you can fucking take them. That's what he should be saying to her. And if he's not saying that to her, yeah, you might have a problem with him. Because if he's not saying that to her, if he's not shutting this down, then he's saying that the needs of his ex and her feelings come before your needs and your feelings. This isn't photos in a hallway framed on a wall. This isn't mementos in a sock drawer. This isn't something in a box in the attic. This is... A campaign to be obnoxious, to antagonize the current girlfriend by his ex. And that's not okay. And if he allows that campaign to go on, he is complicit in it. He is saying this is okay with him. It is okay with him when someone that you have no relation with, that you're not connected to in any way yourself, goes out of her way in a living space that you share from time to time goes out of her way to make you feel uncomfortable and unwanted and unsafe and that doesn't fucking bother him? Yeah, that should bother you. And I would. If I were you, pull the plug on this relationship and wish him a very happy future with his demented ex and their three fucking hairy stupid you got to pick their shit up off the ground forever, children.
5: Hey Dan, I have a question for you. My partner and I are in an open relationship, and he sleeps with other women while I stay at home, which we have agreed on and works for us really well. The other night, uh, a couple approached me about having a threesome, and after discussion during and after sex, he consented to it. He said that as long as I wasn't penetrated by the other party, by the other party's dick, it was completely fine. I went. We were having so much fun, and I was penetrated with the guy's penis, which was awesome, but now I'm lying to my partner about it. I don't know what to do, and I feel really guilty, but at the same time, I feel like it's not a big deal. I need to know what to do here, Dan. Should I tell him, or should I just keep this to myself for a really long time?
3: You could keep this from your partner forever. But the stress of that, knowing that this lie is lying around out there, knowing that these people that you had this three way are rattling around out there, knowing that at some point the truth may come out. And then it's not just the in the moment betrayal that he's going to have a problem with and going to be angry with you about, but the long concealment as well that you didn't run home immediately and confess and throw yourself at his feet. And begged for his mercy, which I don't think you should do. And I think the real reason that you should go and tell him, besides not wanting to compound the perceived wrong and not wanting to live with the stress of when or if this will ever come out, the real reason you should go and tell him what happened is because there is a double standard here that your confession will help to explode. It will clarify something about your relationship. He runs off. You're in an open relationship, which up to now has been a one-sided open relationship, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. There are a lot of people out there in one-sided open relationships. If everyone's happy, everyone's happy. It doesn't have to be ice cream split up for a couple of toddlers where you have to make sure it's exactly equal or someone's being cheated, that you can be in a one-sided open relationship where one partner has sex with other people and the other doesn't because they have no desire to or they're aroused by their other partner having sex with other people, whatever it is. All that said, you're in this open relationship where he has sex with other women and presumably penetrates them. And then he makes a limit for you when you're going to have sex with someone else, which you rarely do up to now. You had never done it. And he makes a no penetration rule that applies to you only. Yeah, that's a kind of unfair double standard that I don't think that you should swallow. So you go to him and you tell him that in the moment you got swept away and the limitation that he placed was violated and you're sorry about that, but you need to have a discussion about reciprocity, equanimity, fairness, and how you move forward from this. And it was a betrayal, but it was a minor betrayal in the grand scheme of things. If he attaches huge symbolic importance to being your sole penetrator – then maybe you two need to part ways. Maybe you two shouldn't be together because whatever symbolic importance he attaches to being your sole penetrator, you don't attach to him being your sole penetrator, or you being his particular and exclusive penetratee. So go and tell him. It may lead to fights, a long dark night of the soul, tears, and arguments. But on the other side, if you come through that, it's either going to lead to you two parting ways, or hopefully what it'll lead to is a more fair, equal, and balanced agreement about your open relationship and the contours of it and what's allowed, not just him, but what's allowed you on those rare occasions when you want to fuck somebody else or get fucked by somebody else.
6: Hey there, Dan and the sorry, youth. I recently moved a couple hours away from where I live to, he was a guy I really like and more and more spend time together swimming out a couple of months, I'm starting to realize that we're just kind of not meant for each other. He's a great guy. Love him to death, but he's very much an only child is how I would describe it. He's really selfish in a lot of ways and he's good in that when I call him out on it, he's very understanding and he apologizes and, you know, respects the fact that he's being selfish, but It keeps happening over and over and over. Um, I'm a bartender, and recently I met somebody who's also dating somebody who is very much not right for him, and we've kind of developed a pretty strong crush on each other. It's starting to develop something, and um, we've made out, I'll say, pretty damn often, but it's very clearly heading to more than that. It's time for both of us to leave our respective independent other I know I need to do it, but also I'm a little worried in that if I leave my partner right now, I'm kind of afraid of what he's going to do to himself. He's a very emotional person, he's gone through a lot of stuff, um, his first real boyfriend, and he's done some self-harm in the past, and I'm afraid that by doing anything, it's going to just happen all over again. And on one hand, I don't want it to happen. He's a good guy. He's not a bad person. He's, you know, what am I saying? On the other hand, I feel like I'm not responsible for his emotional problems and whatever happens as a result of this. You know, it's not working out. Things are not good. I'm not happy. He's not happy. There's a line.
3: This is a tough spot to be in because it's hard to tell. People who are actually fragile and very emotional and likely to engage in acts of self-harm if you should leave them from people who just create a kind of emotionally fragile persona who play that up in order to control and manipulate people. Because here you are. You've only been with this guy for a couple of months. What you've learned during that discovery process, which is what we call early stages of dating, learning about each other, the discovery process. What you've learned is you're not right for each other. And now you can – Never, ever leave him. You have to spend the next 50 or 60 years with him, or he will kill the hostage, which is himself, theoretically. In a situation like that, you kind of just got to do what's right for you. You got to call the bluff. You have to not negotiate with hostage-taking terrorists, even if the only person being taken hostage by the terrorist is the terrorist himself. Sorry, I shouldn't describe people who are fragile in this way as a terrorist, but you get my point. You have to call the bluff. You have to leave. The trick is, and you are indeed not responsible for his emotional problems. The trick is, and what you are responsible for, is to disengage from him in a way that is considerate and thoughtful and compassionate. That's what you owe him. You don't owe him the next 50 or 60 years of your life. You owe him some thoughtfulness and consideration. So you... Reach out to mutual friends if you've gotten to know any of his mutual friends. You reach out to any family members that you know that he has the love and support of. You line up resources that may be available to him in your community. Are there support groups? Does he, through his employment, have access to mental health services? You give him the phone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or you send him to suicidepreventionlifeline.org which also provides services for people who are thinking about or engaging in acts of self-harm. And you lay that all out for him as you, no way to put a gloss on this, no way to make this sound nicer than it is, as you dump him, as you leave him. And if you do like him and you want to stay friends, you can put that on the table too. But it's really hard to stay friends with someone who then... Continues to be a highly emotional person who then attempts to punish you endlessly and manipulate you endlessly with their emotionality because it can be one way for someone that you want out of your life to endlessly keep you in their life without your consent in a strange way. So you have to look out for yourself, but. As a human being who does on some level and to some degree care about this person, dump him as compassionately and thoughtfully as possible, which in a circumstance like this means you have some advanced work to do. You have some homework to do. You have some prep to do before you disengage from him.
7: Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-30s cisgender gay man uh, from a major East Coast city. My husband and I have been together for eight years and over the past year or so, we've experimented with with, uh, opening up our relationship. This has been satisfying for each of us personally and has so far only strengthened our relationship. We've been with other guys while on vacation, but never at home. However, recently, we started to become friends with a really hot gay guy from the gym who we were both really interested in. We asked him if he wanted to get drinks together, and we did, we had a great time getting to know one another. We are planning to get drinks again and wanted to ask him if he's interested in having a threesome. We were wondering about the best way to go about asking him. We've been we've, uh, the two of us has been having a debate whether it's best to have one of us ask him one-on-one or ask him together. If he's not interested, my husband is worried that it might be awkward for him if he has to respond to both of us together. I think we should just ask him together as a couple, since this is an invitation for a threesome and we're both equally interested. Is there an etiquette or protocol for this kind of thing? What's the best way to ask him, together or one or, or one-on-one? This is our first time asking someone we really know if they're up for a threesome, and hope you have some advice. Thanks, Dan.
3: Emily Post did not cover this. There is no established etiquette for who does the asking when a couple wants to have the threesome. I don't see either scenario as problematic or a violation of decent ethics or etiquette. Either you ask alone or your husband asks alone or you both ask together. Just the next time you guys are with him and hanging out, whether as a couple or if one of you runs into him at the gym or grabs coffee with him, just toss it out there on the table casually. It will be awkward. Even if he says yes, even if he wants to have a three-way with you, it's still going to be a little bit awkward as you power through that and negotiate your way through that. I have a hunch that some gay dude who met a couple at the gym – who then went out to drinks with that couple twice. Has it somewhere in his head that the couple may be grooming him for a threesome? I guess grooming isn't a word we should use usually when grooming is used in a sexual context. It's kind of a gruesome sexual context. Styling him for a threesome? Recruiting him? Well, that's bad too. Recruiting him for a threesome? uh, Gonging him? Like, you know, the queen gives you an honor. It's called getting gong. You guys are gonging him for a threesome? He knows but he is waiting for you guys to make the move. I bet. Because he, as the single person, thinks, what if I'm misreading signals? What if what they're interested in is friendship? Even though I've got a really strong vibe that they're interested in me and maybe, I don't want to fuck this up. I don't want to hit on them and have one be really angry because they're actually in a monogamous relationship or both be really angry. So I'm going to let them play this out. No, so the time has come. Just throw it out there on the table. Next time you see him perhaps in a sexier context than running into him at the gym, go out for drinks, the three of you, or just two of you, or ask in an email. Just ask. Just do it. Three ways don't happen unless somebody powers through the initial awkwardness and asks.
4: Hi, Dan. I have a question about safety um, and how to go about safely exploring uh, sexual fantasy. Um, The idea of a threesome with two guys really turns me on, specifically a a spit roast. And I'm just wondering, what's the best way to go about kind of safely making this happen? I'm obviously very much aware of of, um, sexual violence and the potential dangers of taking two guys home with me. Do you have any tips for how how I could best go about making this happen in a in a safe way?
3: There's all the advice that applies when you're meeting people and taking them home at one at a time to meet them in a public place first, to get to know them a little bit. If you are meeting with people or a person specifically to fulfill a sexual fantasy, to really vet them, to require their real names, real phone numbers, contact information so that if they do decide to kill you, they get to go to jail too. And that acts as a disincentive toward killing you or assaulting you in any way for this particular fantasy for wanting two guys at once for the big spit roast. You might want to look into organized swinging scenes because they are to a great extent. And when they're functioning well, they're kind of matriarchal that guys can't come alone and guys who make women feel uncomfortable, are shown the door because if the women march out of the swingers club, it's over. So you can go to an organized swingers club or a sex party or an event and in some small way be reassured about the guys there, which is not to say that sexual assault has never happened or could never happen Or in that environment. Sexual assault, sexual violence can happen in any context, including a committed relationship with somebody that you know very, very well. Marital rape happens. But you do have an added degree of assurance that there is a bar that had to be cleared for people to be in that room and stay in that room and remain in that room. Also, there will be in that room, presumably, other women that guys who may be expressing an interest in you have already hooked up with. And you will be able to turn to those women and ask for a reference. That's part of what an organized swinging scene provides to attendees and members is that kind of social control of being a known quantity for good or ill and people being able to vouch for you or not vouch for you as the case may be and warn you off someone because they had a bad experience with that person perhaps. But if the organized swinging scene isn't for you, Personal ads, put it out there, suggest that you'd like to meet a nice bi-male couple. They're out there too to help you fulfill this fantasy. And then meet in public, get to know them a little bit. You are the prize, kinky women, sexually adventurous women looking for this kind of thing particularly. You can be very demanding. You can be very dictatorial about what they're going to have to do to earn your trust And make you feel comfortable enough to go through with this, with them. Don't be shy. Be assertive if you go that route. And if you say to someone or someones, a couple of guys, these are the things that I need from you in order for me to feel safe doing this with you. And they balk or they argue with you or they attempt to manipulate you into letting go of those things. Run. Not the guys that you should be doing this with. However hot they might be. They have identified themselves in that moment as potentially unsafe and therefore disqualified.
0: Hi, Dan, tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old male living in San Francisco, and I wanted to call to see if you could help me with some indecisiveness regarding male birth control. current situation that I'm in is that I don't want kids now or ever. I've confronted the potentiality of childbearing before when an ex-girlfriend and I were in fee V-type triad with another man and she became pregnant. She ultimately decided to have an abortion that I supported and wanted. We weren't certain who the father was, but she thought that I was the less likely of the two. Whenever I've been dating, child rearing has been a disqualifying quality. Currently, I'm in a non-monogamous relationship with an amazing 34-year-old woman who's also emphatically doesn't want kids. Here's my issue. I'm having a disconnect between my desires to be child-free and my actions. I've taken the medical first steps, such as mandatory educational classes, etc., to have a vasectomy before I had the abortion with my ex-girlfriend three years ago and again now, but I haven't gone through with signing the final papers to make it happen. I know I don't want children, but thoughts like, who's going to take care of me when I'm 90? With reversible vas deferen blockers such as Vagicil potentially on the market in the near future, why destroy my optionality? These thoughts have held me back from having a vasectomy. And even if I had a complete switch in attitudes, which I don't think is likely at all, I think that I would rather adopt than breed. How can I make up my mind and come to terms with the finality of the decision of having a vasectomy?
3: Joining me by phone to help field this question from upstate New York, joining me by phone, Eric Kleinenberg is a professor of sociology at NYU and the best selling author of books, including Modern Romance with Aziz Ansari and Going Solo The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living alone. Hey, Eric, thanks for jumping on the phone.
2: Great to be here, Dan. Thanks.
3: I thought of you when I heard this question, not so much about the vasectomy issue and pulling that trigger or emptying those chambers, however you want to describe that. But people living alone, many of them childless. One of this man's concerns in adulthood is who will take care of him. So you studied this issue extensively. Who is going to change all those adult diapers in the future of all those people who opted to live alone and live childlessly?
2: So I think that's a great question. Um, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that's a question that anyone can comfortably answer, whether they are single or married at the moment, or uh, whether they're childless or uh, you know with lots of kids. Um, just because we live in a culture where there's there's so much mobility, uh, both mobility in and out of relationships, mm-hmm. like being married today is by no means a guarantee that you're going to live with someone uh, in your later years, and also physical mobility. Americans move a lot, and so you know there are millions of older people today who have children that are thousands of miles from them, and they're not much help when it comes to changing those diapers.
3: So even if he has kids, that doesn't mean there's going to be someone there to help him in his dotage.
2: Obviously not not necessarily. I mean, l- let's be honest: the the, the chance that you're, you're going to have uh, uh, family members around to help take care of you go up quite a lot. If you have a large family, you can make that large family in any number of ways. Uh, and one is to, uh, have your own biological children, uh, and be as kind to them as you possibly can be. Uh, <laughs> in the hopes that they will be
3: there to change your diapers or to pay someone to change your diapers when you're 90.
2: Exactly. Uh, but, 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 you know, so, so I think it is, it is fair to say that, uh, you know, the caller's concerns, uh, are legitimate not having children definitely puts you at greater risk of not having uh, adults to take to help take care of you later on.
3: But you know what you know what I, what I think is interesting and really telling about the way he frames this whole question is he's worried about the irreversibility of a vasectomy, but he also says that he only wants to if he has children to adopt. So really, the vasectomy is not germane at all, or his ability to crank out sperm cells successfully, not germane at all. If if he wants to have kids at some point in the future, he can only picture himself adopting. Also, if he never has kids of his own, if he's you know in his 30s now and he's going to have kind of lifelong poly kind of relationships, the odds that he will partner at some point in the future, a decade from now, two decades from now, with someone who has adult children of their own with whom you can bond, who maybe will then help you change your diapers when the time comes, rises. So right. I wonder if the issue isn't so much, you know, who's going to take care of me, or letting go of kids, but the symbolic kind of thing—the the, the symbolic meaning that a lot of men attach to the potency of their own jizz.
2: Boy, I think you've totally nailed it. Uh, I, I think that's—I think that's right. Uh, and there's obviously a huge amount of cultural baggage uh, that we inherit from from growing up in this culture. Uh, l- l- you know, one interesting thing that we're seeing now is that. Uh, you know men have historically uh, done a pretty terrible job of making and maintaining relationships Uh, you know historically in straight couples there was a kind of clear social division of labor uh, where women were doing a lot of that especially in the family Mm -hmm. Uh, and that meant when 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 there was divorce men had a much higher probability of getting isolated uh, especially getting cut off from people in the family the very people uh, they need they would need later in life now I think we're starting to see a shift where uh, people are uh, investing, uh, you know, time, energy into making and maintaining relationships throughout their lives, and by and people you mean
3: th- by people you mean men too. Not just men. I mean, men,
2: men count in this one too. I think, it, you know, especially men are, are, are waking up to this uh, because it makes the quality of their lives much better. Uh, but also, because we have such fluidity in our social lives, uh, in our personal lives, uh, you know, we're, we're never really done making our families or making the support systems that sustain us and so look I think you just made one great point which is that a lot of people who raise children find that they somehow do enough damage in the course of that very intimate relationship (laughs) that it's difficult to get to get care later in life right like let's be honest about that whereas a lot of people who who make families later in their lives are able to start fresh and maybe be a little bit more uh, decent and humane. Um, I'm, not, I'm not making the case, you know, against uh, you know making and establishing close ties with family members throughout your life, you know. But there, we we have a lot of a lot of shots at this.
3: But those aren't the only familial ties and blood relations or adoptive relations aren't the only ties that you can create that will sustain you in old age. But let's circle back to this vasectomy. Like the kids are irrelevant. The vasectomy and I, you know, I'm gonna circle back to my point. Again, I think the caller, caller, I'm gonna address you. I think your real issue is letting go of, you know, the shit that flies out of your dick when you have an orgasm having this mystical power to create life, even if you don't want to create life. Like symbolically, it's less sexy to think I'm firing blanks and to think I'm firing this magic people mm. potion. Mm. And I think you should wrestle with that. Maybe that's the issue with the vasectomy. And Everything Eric said, it should be very reassuring about your ability to create the kind of ties in adulthood to sustain you with or without children and that children, yours or adoptive, are not necessarily any guarantee that you will be cared for. So separate those issues. And I think you'll uh, – I'm with you. And and, and, I, and I actually think the answer is maybe not to have a vasectomy, just to have anal sex exclusively from now on so as not to make any babies. <laughs>
2: I, I love it. Uh, there's, there are very few questions that can't be answered that way.
3: <laughs> it's totally worked for me and Terry. We have no unplanned children.
2: <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I think that's great. I th- you know, the other thing I would say, uh, Gina, just kind of circling back again to um, the work I did on going solo, is that because we now live in a world where, you know, there are just millions of people who are living alone and aging alone, we're also all scrambling to come up with new ways to take care of each other uh, at all points in our lives, and you know, one of the most fascinating things I saw as I traveled around the world for that book are these communities that are being built by you know older, more mature people uh, who are recognizing how much we need each other. Uh, you know, not just when we're we're young and want to go out and be social, but also when we're older and have you know all sorts of problems that. Um, that we can solve better collectively than we can on our own. So, you know, this book I wrote about going solo is actually a, a book about how we can treat each other by by being better connected. And so I think, what you know, one happy piece of news to report outside of the uh, zone of, of of vasectomies and anal sex uh, <laughs> is that, you know, we are coming up with ways to uh, to be decent and good and to provide for one another. Uh, And, you know, maybe having children is not the only way to get through life these days.
3: It's a terrific book, Going Solo, which, again, paradoxically, as you just pointed out, Eric, is really kind of about connection and not about isolation. Pick it up and read it. Also read Eric Kleinenberg's book that he wrote with Aziz Ansari, Modern Romance. Thank you so much, Eric. Always such a pleasure talking to you.
2: Thanks. You too, Dan. Take care.
8: Hi, Dan. I've been in a polyamorous relationship for about a year. On and off we've been exclusive uh, with the woman I've been seeing. She is married and, um, her husband and I are good friends. Um, recently I found out that she had not been completely truthful with another relationship she was pursuing with another couple. And also recently she flew with them to the West coast. And was adamant that uh, they were just friends. And when she got out there to their home, there, uh, she confessed that they were all pursuing a relationship together. I had asked her several times if there was more than just friendship, and she denied uh, every time. And this this happened, you know, a couple times. I, I asked her. Uh, so I'm I'm not sure where to go from here. I'm kind of at, uh, you know a crossroads because I'm trying to have compersion, uh, but I feel like she violated my trust to spare her feelings. She says that she feels like I'm not Polly, but I think that she did she didn't tell me about this to spare like I said her feelings and not mine, uh, so that she could validate her actions. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see if you uh, want to talk more about it.
3: Compersion. Let's define that for people who may not be familiar with the term is an empathetic state of happiness. Enjoy experience when another individual experiences happiness in the context of polyamorous relationships. It is used to describe when a person experiences positive feelings when their lover is enjoying another relationship. Sounds like you're quite capable of compersion, which is a terrible word. I don't know why that word gets under my skin the way it does. And I'm a neologism machine myself, so it's not like I don't think people can invent words or create new words. They should. I do. There's something about compersion that doesn't roll off the tongue, nor does its synonym frubble exactly roll off the tongue. But anyway, it sounds like you're capable of compersion. What it doesn't sound like you're down with is being lied to. And your poly girlfriend is apparently attempting to poly shame you by telling you you're failing at poly because you're not down with lies. And you need to draw a very clear line between her being with other people and her lying to you about the other people that she's with. Lies aren't okay. Polyamorous relationships, having multiple partners, really requires for that to go. And this is true of one at a time relationships too. For that to work, people have to be. Pretty straightforward, pretty honest, good at communicating, and for someone's comfort, particularly in an open relationship, there needs to be a degree of transparency for someone else to feel emotionally and physically safe. She isn't being transparent. You, consequently, don't feel emotionally safe with her, and I think that you should end this relationship because she's lying. Maybe she's a habitual liar. We don't know. I'm not going to call her a liar Everybody lies from time to time. She lied. But then instead of apologizing for the lie or putting it in context or explaining and, and making amends and trying to do better, she scolded you. It wasn't that she had failed, but you had failed because she lied. You did something wrong. You were compersion deficient in some way. And that was the problem. And that's blame shifting and that's bullshit. And that is a very good reason to end a relationship with someone. You don't want to be with a blame shifting
9: Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 30-something cisgendered female. And this past weekend, I was at my fiancé's sister's wedding. I am just getting to know the extended family and was talking to various members throughout the night. One of the young cousins, an 18-year-old girl, has started to become more comfortable around me and knows I'm a social worker by profession. At one point, I overheard a conversation between her and her 21-year-old male cousin. She was telling him about abuse she endures from her boyfriend, about how he has pushed her and choked her, and as she was talking about it, she just proceeded to laugh it off. These didn't sound like kinks. They sounded like acts of violence. And what concerns me is that nobody has had a conversation with her about safety boundaries and how to identify when you're uncomfortable the male cousin was telling her that's not okay that's not normal that shouldn't happen but she still laughed through it I feel stuck because I want someone to have a good conversation with her and I don't know her well enough to be that person not to mention I wasn't a part of the conversation it was just something I overheard I told my fiancé about it, but I'm hesitant to tell anyone else in the family because she is technically an adult and it's really not my business. Now, days have passed, we live in different states, and I'm still thinking about it and how I'm concerned for her. Dan, what do I do?
3: I don't see the harm in reaching out. Send this young woman an email, tell her that you overheard what she was saying and... You're new to the family, you want to be uh, available to people in the family, that you're a counselor, if she ever wants to talk about her relationship with you, that you're there for her and you think she's a swell young woman and you'd like her to see you as an aunt and a resource and someone that she can turn to because pushing and shoving and choking perhaps in some relationships can be appropriate or playful and some people are into choking and that can be sexy, although it is very dangerous. And so you don't think necessarily that that's proof that she's being abused, but it was concerning. It raised some red flags for you. And if that's ever something she wants to talk with you about, you're there for her. And then if you don't hear back from her, you've done what enough. You've done what you can reasonably do in that circumstance and you can move on with a clear conscience. You also might want to reach out to the other person that she was talking to when you overheard these things. Is it worse than she let on? Was she putting on a brave face because she was at a social event and didn't want to go to pieces? Was there more to this story? Because if it's worse than she let on, if she confided in that person later that it was actually making her feel unsafe, uncomfortable, if she felt abused, or if by any objective measure she is being abused, it is abuse, then perhaps you could up the ante and stage some sort of intervention by rallying not people she's just met, not new members of the family, but the people closest to her to sit her down and have a chat with her about what she's going through and make sure that she knows that she has family that love and support her and that if she's in a bad place and in a bad relationship. They're there to help her extricate herself from that. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to talk about a new documentary that it's in our wheelhouse because it touches on fetish films, porn, uh, a certain specific sub joining me by phone from New York, Dylan Reeve and David Ferrier. David Ferrier is a journalist, Dylan Reeve is a filmmaker, and together they have brought out, they have brought us this new film called Tickled, which is about, oh my God, how do you describe it? David, when someone asks you what the film is about, what do you say?
10: Yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's about competitive endurance tickling, but then it it turns into a, a film that's not about tickling at all, but it's about this, you know, bigger, darker mystery that we. That we discover.
3: And we don't want to give that mystery away uh, because I would like everyone to see the film and have the same experience of it that I did as I watched it unfold. Because you dive into competitive endurance tickling, you find these basically tickle fetish videos online, you reach out to the company that makes them, and what's the response that you get? This is really what is the catalyst for your journey into this very dark Mm. world. What was the response?
10: I mean, the the response I got on that public Facebook page to an interview request was we don't want to deal with a homosexual journalist, which was an incredibly strange response because, you know, it was incredibly, you know, it's a shocking thing to read, especially on a public Facebook wall from that PR person. But also just the fact that these videos the company was making, these competitive endurance tickling videos, were incredibly homoerotic. It was fit young men aged between 18 and 23 who were tickling each other. There were no females involved. It was, well, not overtly sexual. It was definitely something sexual going on. So to get that response was just, it was a real
3: wake-up call. And it, it escalated from there. You continued to inquire, to ask questions, and then lawsuits, then threatening letters from Yeah, orders. I mean,
10: I started, I mean, I originally was going to do a, you know, a two-and-a-half-minute story for the news about this weird sort of thing I'd found on the internet, and when they didn't get an interview, I started blogging about it um, on a news website, and then Dylan, who made the film with me, he started blogging about sort of the tech side to it, and who was behind a lot of the websites, and what was going on with this company, and we both ended up receiving letters from lawyers in the United States and New Zealand telling us to stop what we were doing.
3: Dylan, you're straight, right?
11: what? Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, we, we we don't we don't believe in in, in absolutes, do we? But yes, reasonably. Uh,
3: we round people up here a lot, so we're going to round Good, you okay, up or round down, up to then. round you up or down to straight, depending on how people yep. feel about well, straight. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, when you got pulled into this, what was your reaction to kind of landing in this gay porn subgenre corner of the internet? Was it through the Looking Glass shit for you, or were you familiar with the crazier porn on the internet?
11: I've been on the internet for a long time, so I mean, I'm, I'm not easily surprised by what I find. What, what was surprising was the the disparity between, between message and content. That was what drew me in, right? The, the, the response that David got about, you know, not wanting to deal with a homosexual journalist alongside these clearly homoerotic videos was just so insane that I thought there's something else happening here, and I had to, I had to try and find out. I had to sort of dig into the web presence and see if I could figure anything out from that. And so that
3: was... And what did you find out? What 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 can we share with people that's not going to ruin the experience of the film?
11: I mean, the first thing I found out that motivated us to go forward was when I started looking at the domain names I found, you know, roughly sort of 300 domain names that were registered to the same company, most of which were, you know, things like ticklish, ticklishbritish.com and and, you know, ticklishmilitaryguys.com, things like that. Um, but a good number of them, say somewhere 50-60 something like that, were, were clearly uh, like firstnamelastname.com. You know, they were, they were people's names. And then, you know, digging into those, the ones that I could still find, the ones that were online or that I could find an archived version of, they were these, these strange smear sort of attack sites posting um, these people's tickling videos and, and disparaging them as being, as being um, gay tickle perverts and posting their, their home phone numbers and their email addresses and Facebook contacts and, and all sorts of things.
3: Ruining um, people, it was, revenge porn version.
11: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like revenge porn, although it wasn't porn. It was just tickling. Um, but it was strange, and this bullying and harassment just didn't fit well with us. And so I think it was that you know that was one of the big motivations for for going deeper was that we wanted to to get in, get behind this and and sort of give these people some sort of defense, I suppose, or fight back against it.
3: And it was bullying and harassment of performers, people who'd been in the videos who'd run afoul of the company or the owner of the company. Yeah, creative videos. Yeah, like they they didn't
11: go want
10: to go back and do more was was, seemed to be a a, a pattern. Yeah, like if you want to take part in the tickling competition, that's great. But the second you you know you don't want to tickle anymore or you don't want to, you know, go back to Los Angeles, because these people are flowing in from all around the world to LA to take part in this tickling contest, the second you don't want to take part in that anymore, that's when things can turn on you and suddenly the company that was previously paying you big money. To make these tickling videos, suddenly that company is turning on you and trying to ruin your life.
3: There are tickling videos in your film. You show some of these videos, and people's faces aren't blurred out. Did you guys create some of your own tickling videos to use in the film, or are these actual videos from this company creating these? No,
11: it, all the tickling videos, except for there's a there's a little bit that we go and we, we go and, and visit a, a a good tickler, shall we call them? Um, aside from that bit, everything everything is, is real tickling videos that we found on the internet. Or
3: was there any concern about the film actually outing people or getting performers in trouble
11: a little bit but not so much in the fact that the film comes with context mm-hmm. so no one can watch the film and see those videos and not understand the context in which they existed um, and also we're not identifying you know that we're not naming anyone mm. um or any that so i mean we hope that certainly no one will come away with with a lesser impression of the of the people who honestly took up an interesting opportunity on the internet that was portrayed as something a little bit different to what it really was.
3: It, it's true. The context is exonerating. These are people who are wanting a little bit of money, having a little bit of fun, not doing anything in their minds overtly sexual. They're just getting tickled. It was really the retaliatory owner... I think singular, we can share that without ruining the film of the company who is outing people and accusing them after having taken part in what was clearly for the market that these films are targeted at a fetish video, accusing them of being perverts and contextualizing their participation in that way, which your film does not do. Yeah. So one of the details I think that we can share without ruining the film is you guys are being sued like crazy and at every step they threatened lawsuits when you first inquired, David, about wanting to write something or do do a piece that was just simple and uh, cheerful, I think, and kind of you know, fun and sex positive about their company, about their videos, hmm. threatening you with lawsuits out of the gate. And you're still being threatened with lawsuits now that the film is done and out. Isn't that right?
10: Yeah, I mean – it's, it's continued because I mean, right from the get go, we received these legal threats and we were told very clear that if you, if you proceed with this, then the, the lawsuits will escalate. And, you know, since we, we premiered this at Sundance in January and since then, you know, as a, a film festival in Missouri and, you know, I went sort of ducked outside to go to a filmmaker's drinks and a woman tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you David Farrier? And I assumed it was someone who had seen the film and wanted to talk about it, but I said, yes, I'm David. And she said, You're served, and you know, handed me an envelope, and that had two lawsuits in it. So, you know, it's all based around defamation of character and that sort of thing, and we're dealing with those lawsuits. But it's an ongoing thing, and I, and you know, with with the film being out in America now, it's going to be interesting to see whether that, how much that escalates. But we're, you know, we've been involved in this for a couple of years now, and we're sort of, we were expecting this to happen, and so we're just riding with it the best we can.
3: Zooming out for a second, there was an, an, a, there was something that you guys included in the film, and I wanted to hear about your thought process behind it because I thought it was really terrific and a, a, a grace move on your parts. You go to and profile and visit with and uh, film uh, a, a session uh, with a tickle fetish porn producer who's not a monster, who isn't terrorizing anyone, who isn't you know taking revenge on models who don't want to work with him anymore, and. What was why include that guy? What, what was your thought process behind including that guy in this film about a tickle fetish film producer who is a monster?
10: I think the, the the thought behind it is that you know Dylan and I both the last thing we wanted to do was to demonize the world of tickling in any way because you know we'd we'd talked to, to a lot of the people on various tickling forums and been incredibly helpful in sort of opening up this world for us and we didn't want people to leave this film thinking that. Everyone involved in tickling is some kind of a monster, you know. So,
3: or everyone involved in porn is some kind of a
10: monster. In yeah. porn, ex- exactly. And we didn't want to fall into those traps, which are, I think, very easy traps that a lot of people fall into. And so we met this man who's an out and proud gay man and he loves tickling. And we wanted to celebrate that and show how this was an incredibly valid thing that he was doing. He was making a living from it. Um, uh, he wasn't hurting living. anyone. In fact, he had a lot of really healthy relationships out of it. And with the models that came along to the shoots, and he was, you know, the, selfishly for us as well, I mean, making the film was stressful, and we were trying to get to a lot of people who didn't want to be interviewed, and it was so nice mm-hmm. to spend time with someone who did want to hang out with us. And we could, you know, we went to karaoke with him, and we and, <laughs> and we ate with him, and, you know, and he showed us a, a window into this amazing world that he's a part of, and I think that was really great to share that with, with the audience as
3: well. And the key there, I think, and the key difference between the people who are suing you, the people you encountered pursuing the competitive endurance tickling fetish, you know, Goliath, the difference between him and this guy that you spent time with and did karaoke with is out proud gay man.
11: Well, and and also, I mean, just just comfortable with who he is, regardless of of anything else. He's just, he's clearly comfortable with who he is. And that means he can live his life, um, you know,
10: openly and happily. That's
3: great. And he's not tortured by shame and doesn't then turn around and attempt to torture other people.
10: Exactly. And I think there's a message in the film as well. And I hope that's what people take away is that, you know, just as long as you're not hurting anyone, anyone else, just like let people be themselves. And, you know, the world would be It's a very simple message. And it seems really obvious, but, you know, just let people be themselves and, 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 and you should be able to be proud and happy with who you are as well.
3: Where do you hope this goes? These lawsuits, uh, what do you hope happens to this particular company? Um, it, will it be enough if just people hear uh, enough people here, enough young men hear about this film or now if they Google this company or Google competitive endurance tickling, they may think twice about working with this particular company lest they be victimized? Is that your is that your goal? I mean, that,
11: that was the gist of it when we started out. So it, was to, it was to try and take the teeth out of the bullying side of things, right? So You know, if they want to keep making tickling videos and they can do it without being um, horrible to people, without bullying and harassing them, then that's fine. But as long as the bullying and harassing stops, then it's a win, I think.
10: And, I mean, on the ultimate level, I mean, I I hope that people, you know, it is a bit of a cautionary tale just to be aware of, you know, who and what you're dealing with on the internet and, you know, that everything is not as it seems. And I know a lot of us, we know this, but there's always ways you can be fooled. And, you know, and also ultimately... uh, if things, if, if the company doesn't change its behaviour, I, I would hope that, you know, if it gets out there widely enough in America as well, that something is done about this and it and it is stopped. You know, we've made the film, we've put this behaviour and this this all all this out there, and and hopefully, it will come to an end.
3: I hope so too. And just in our brief conversation about it it'll blow your mind listeners when you see this movie, because we haven't really touched on how sinister this is, how widespread it is, how far these tentacles go, the damage done to, to innocent people by this particular company. It's a fascinating film. Uh, Dylan Reeve, David Ferrier. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Go to tickledmovie.com for more information and to find out uh, when you can see tickled the movie. And when it comes to a, uh, film festival, or hopefully soon a theater or web streaming service near you. Thank you so much, you guys, for jumping on the phone. Really appreciate it. Fascinating film. Thank
10: you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
12: Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question about my upcoming wedding um, in about three months. My fiancé and I have been together for six years, and we have decided to finally get married. The problem is coming down to his family. Um, his Parents are extremely conservative and extremely religious, and it's been something that my fiancée and I have struggled to accept about them because we do not share their views in any way. Um, When we decided to get married, the first thing that we did was sat down and um, made a conscious decision to invite his younger brother, who is gay, to our wedding along with his long term partner who we are also very close friends with. Um, In addition to um, letting them know that we were getting married, we also called his brother and his brother's partner and told them that their invitation was explicitly extended to the both of them together because in the entire six years um, my fiance and I have been together, we've never seen his little brother and his little brother's partner together at a family function because um, they are not welcome at any of those events. So, um, because we've invited his gay brother to our wedding and his gay brother's partner, his father, my fiancé's father, um, has stated that he will not be attending our wedding. This is weighing pretty heavily on myself, just because between his parents and his brother, that's the only members of my fiancé's family out of the over 100 guests that we're having um that are actually considering attending and so right now his family is basically forcing us to choose between having his parents there or having his brother and his brother's partner attend so i feel really caught and i feel really torn because i don't want to come between him and his family and my fiance has come to the decision that if his father and his mother do not come to the wedding, that we will break off all contact with them, which is something that I'm actually trying not to encourage. Um, Is there any way that we can get his parents to understand that we just want everybody to come together and and celebrate love on both sides? Or is this something that I should just let my fiance handle on his own and potentially cut um, his parents out of his life?
3: What you do in cases like this, and I know this from reading. Emily Yofi, Dowager, Dear Prudence. Mallory Edberg, now Dear Prudence, doing an awesome job. But Emily answered a lot of questions like this, where somebody in the family was refusing to come to the wedding if somebody else was invited. And her standard go to response in all cases was to say to the person threatening not to come, to say to the blackmailer, You will be missed. You are invited if you're not coming you will be missed except in this case, I kind of think that that would be a lie because I don't think bigot, shitty mom and dad are going to be missed. I think actually them showing up will be stressful and horrible. And I think you should listen to your fucking fiance who is telling you through his actions, not that he's willing to perhaps break with his parents. Maybe he's anxious to break with his shitty bigoted parents. Maybe he wants to choose His brother and his brother's husband or partner over his shitty, bigoted, controlling, tantrum-throwing parents. And finally, there is a casus belli that's going to allow him to do that. And to demonstrate to his brother that he sees a future with him and that relationship. And not so much a future with his bigoted, shitty parents. And really, folks, when parents try to force you to choose between them and siblings and the parents are clearly and obviously in the wrong, choose Your siblings, your parents will die. Your parents are your past, right? That's what they represent. That's what they are. And you should honor them and have a good and decent relationship with them. But your siblings are your present. They're they're the future of the people you walk through life with. And you should, if a parent is being shitty and forcing you to pick between them and a sib, pick the sib. And this choice of the brother and his gay lover, partner, husband, whatever the fuck he is, is long overdue. Back off. Butt the fuck out. These are your husband-to-be's family relationships to manage. And yes, it would be nice if everybody could be there and everybody could get along, but these tantrum-throwing, bigoted shitbags have made it clear that they can't be there and they can't get along. Not only that, they want to control your guest list and they want to continue to emotionally and spiritually abuse their gay son in this vicious way that you would even for a moment hesitate to tell them to go fuck themselves. I find not shocking. I find sad. And I'm sure if you thought about it for just another minute before you called, you would have come to the realization that when you're put in a situation where you have to pick the bigot, or pick the person the bigot is abusing you pick the person who is being abused you stand with them with your future brothers in law both of them your future father in law thinks he's forcing you to choose between him and his gay brother your your fiance's gay brother there is no choice here at all this is such an obvious choice that it's really not a choice not anything you have to stress about or hem and haw about pick the brother the brother's partner, tell crazy dad to go fuck himself.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29 year old straight cis female in New York City. I'm calling because I have some information that I have been given, and I'm hoping you can sort of spin some Dan Savage wisdom to help me feel better about the fact that I can't unknow uh, what I now know. This past weekend, over 4th of July, my boyfriend, whom I love very deeply and who I have great great sex with, asked my parents for their blessings to propose to me, and they granted it. It was a really lovely moment. We toasted. We had excited conversations about when we could introduce our parents to each other, and et cetera, et cetera. It was really great. Later that night, my mother told me that my dad's response had been really heartwarming and sweet,
4: and she sort of... quoted him to
13: me, and she said that he, she, he said, May you remember that there are always partners, best friends, and lovers. I don't remember the exact wording of the next part, but he effectively said partners and best friends are the most important because they are the enduring part, and the role of lover often will fade. It sounded sort of sweet, I think well-intentioned and fatherly, but it kind of dredged up something that I found out a few years ago, and here's the problem. My mother struggles with alcoholism. For years, she's self-medicated her anxiety and depression with wine, and there have been lots of years, secrets, lies, triangulation, and anger. And then during uh, one very heated fight, I was sort of insisting that I knew she had been drinking, and she said she hadn't. And then she eventually lost her temper and said, maybe you would have a little sympathy. If, if you were in a sexless marriage, you would drink too. So, you know, we immediately both went silent. I now know that my parents don't have sex anymore, not something I really want to think about or want to know either way. Um, And I don't remember what happened next exactly, but since then we've buried the fight deep down and don't ever acknowledge the fact that I know this. In the immediate aftermath, my mother apologized and was humiliated and referred to the incident as her rock bottom, saying she would never have had the bad judgment to disclose this private and painful information to me if she hadn't been drinking. And since then, we haven't talked about it. Basically, I, I don't want to discuss it with my parents. I don't, it, it's none of my business. What they do in their bedroom is what they do in their bedroom. But it, it breaks my heart for my mom and, and for my dad. Uh, and I know it's common. I don't think they'll get a divorce. I know they love each other and they love their life together. And how, how they have chosen to deal with this is their business. But all the same, it breaks my heart and it frankly kind of freaks me out given my sort of newly engaged status and thinking about my future with my partner. Not really sure what I'm asking, Dan, but I am hoping you can sort of spin some wisdom, like I said, and just maybe make me feel better. Is this as common as it sounds like it might be given some of the cards I've heard on your show? Is Is this sort of like, is everyone doomed for sexless marriages after 30 years? I don't know. I just, I feel really sad and and I'm just thinking about it
3: because my dad kind of brought it up and I don't know. The stats on sexless marriage may be comforting to you or, or they may not. It runs everything from 2% of couples reported not having sexual activity the last year to something like 20 or perhaps even 30% of marriages being sexless. It depends on how you define sexless, however, because some people's definitions of sexless in marriage is sex less than 10 times a year. So people may be having sex once a month, every month of the year, save December because it's a shit show and January because it's depressing. There are people who've been together 30 years who their marriages are about so much else. They're about intimacy. They're about comfort. They're about familiarity. They're about kids. They're about status and position and sex is much less important to them 30 years in. And a sexless marriage is only a problem if Whether you're talking about no sex or sex most months of the year, save two, is only a problem if it makes one or the other, both of the people in that marriage miserable. There are people in long-term, companionate, relatively sexless marriages or absolutely sexless marriages who are perfectly content. And they get swept up in these stats of sexless marriage, even if it's not a problem. They're not unhappy. so But they get thrown out there as an example of broken marriages or the kind of marriage that you fear. And not everybody in a sexless marriage is unhappy. And a lot of people in sexless marriages who are content had very sexy marriages at the start, but they've moved out of the sex and they're not miserable, unlike your mother. If somebody confesses to being miserable in their sexless marriage when drunk in vino veritas, that's not a sexless marriage working for both partners. So that would be a problematic sexless marriage. Sex is important to you. Desire over time decreases. What we know now about female sexual desire is really upending what a lot of people assumed about female sexual desire. Female sexual desire for a long-term partner craters after a few years. Male sexual desire decreases on a much slower slope. Female sexual desire, as Esther Perel, author of Mating in Captivity, points out, goes off a cliff. And so knowing that, how do you guys control for it. If sex is very important in your life, if sex is really important to your connection and you know sexless marriages happen, sometimes even to the sexiest of couples, and you know that you would be unhappy if it happened to you and knowing that desire is something that has to be goosed and maintained in a long-term relationship, what are your strategies? How are you going to do that? How are you going to communicate about it? How are you going to make sure? that the sex is still good and if not central, and it will not be central over the long term, if not central, at least prominent and important and happening. How are you going to make that happen for yourselves? Have that conversation and put it out there that if the sex disappears and one or the other of you are not happy about that, an accommodation will have to be made. Whether that's outside sexual partners, whether that's polyamory, whether that's a trip to the Jack shack for him or a trip to Puerto Vallarta with your personal trainer for you, whatever it is, an accommodation will be made that you will not live without sex and you do not expect him to live without sex. If the sex falls apart in the relationship, but you want to preserve the relationship, you will find a way to make room for sex in your relationship. Hopefully if you want to be monogamous and preferably if you want to be monogamous with each other, but failing that, perhaps there will be an accommodation in the future that allows sex to continue to happen for you or for him, even if it's not happening for you with him. And my sort of signature piece of advice myself to people who are in a long term relationship and they want to keep the spark alive is surprise, not open up the relationship necessarily. It's to think back to the start of the relationship and what was so exciting about sex then. And what was exciting early in the relationship was that you didn't know each other well, that you were mysteries to each other to some extent, that you were engaged in that discovery process, which isn't just about learning about your partner's emotional traits or their what they bring to the relationship in other areas, but learning about them sexually, learning about their bodies. And often early, there are hurdles you have to clear before you can do it. You have to find a place to do it. You have to find a time to do it. You have, there's this dance that you're engaged in. And initially, it does feel a bit like a bungee jump the first time you go to bed with somebody. Or the first couple of dozen or hundred times you go to bed with somebody, it's kind of magic because you are taking a risk. And so you can't recreate what's unknowable about each other. You can't take yourselves back to a time when you were each a risky mystery. And you were engaged in that discovery process around sex with each other. But you can't artificially create hurdles and artificially create new risks to take the place of those ones that through time and familiarity and intimacy and comfort and getting to know each other and living together have dissipated. So this is always my example. It's been a while since you two have had sex. You've been married for 15 years. You have a kid. You're a little busy. And you go to each other and you agree, this week we're going to have sex three times, but not in our house, not in our bed. And you have to figure out the time and the place and surprise me. Next time we do this, I will figure out the time and place and surprise you. And then you're going to tiptoe through your day knowing that if your partner should come around the corner in your office where your partner usually doesn't visit you, never comes to your office. That means, oh, my God, I'm going to get fucked at work today surprise and you have to find a place in this building to fuck and it's going to be risky and exciting and naughty and bad and dangerous and all of those things are going to make sex with this person who is familiar and comfortable interesting again because you have to jump over these hurdles you have to step outside your comfort zones which is what you were doing at the beginning of the relationship the first time you went to bed with somebody the first time you go to bed with somebody you are stepping outside your comfort zone because you're inviting somebody else into your physical zone and that's invigorating, it's risky, gets the blood pumping, because you're bridging this gap, this chasm. And you can engineer that in a long-term relationship, that feeling of that leap, that bungee jump, bridging that chasm, taking that risk. You can create that if you both are invested in creating that, and if you both are invested in sustaining your long-term sexual connection. And you don't have to be non-monogamous to do that.
14: Hi, uh, I am uh, calling for, uh, in response to the, the British woman who called in, um, who's a survivor of sexual assault in uh, episode 508. Um, I, uh, I'm an educator with a company that does sexual assault prevention training for the military and for civilians uh, and college campuses and that kind of thing. And um, I just wanted to call in and and say that my heart goes out to you. Um, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That never should have. You know, and then I, I might have a couple uh, a little bit of information that, that you might find useful. You know, um, there's a study uh, by a guy named Dr. David Liesack who polled about 2,000 men on our Twitter College campus um, with an average age of 26. Um, at the time of the poll, I, uh, you know, I, it, it, it was a sexual uh, health survey with a couple questions disguised. Um, that basically, if you said yes to, to those questions, would unwittingly admit to have raped. To having raped someone. The numbers are from that, that four to 7% of men at the time of survey uh, had admitted to raping someone, uh, which is horrible. But it also means that 93% of men on the outside uh, of the the worst case scenario, you know, never had and and, uh, presumably never would. So the vast majority of men, the vast majority of people think this is abhorrent and would never do it, which might help getting you know, help with the fear of getting out there a little bit. And I hope that it does. Uh, the bad news is, is that uh, the vast majority of rapists tend to be serial rapists, right? Um, 70% are responsible for around six rapes apiece. That said, um, your decision to come forward and talk to the cops, I don't mean to go against Dan, but is entirely yours. Like you've had enough choices taken away from you at this point. You know, all the choices from here on out are yours right? Um, I know how the law works over in Britain. Uh, I do know that even if there's not enough evidence to convict, um, a, a pattern or history of several reports, um, can often be enough over here in the States. Um, so if you feel like that's something you want to do and feel comfortable doing, you know, there, there are reasons to do it, even if, you know, uh, it's not going to immediately, you know, convict this guy right away. But anyway, uh, you know, I I just want to close by saying, like, I'm I'm so sorry, again, that this this happened to you. And, you know, you probably don't need to hear it gets better from a cis white straight guy in America. So I'll say instead, I'm going to borrow from a Brit and say, if you're going through hell, keep going. That's I think that's Winston, Winston Churchill. You know, seek so out a support group, a supportive environment can really reduce the amount of time it takes to recover from something like this. Um, but but yeah, um, again, take care of yourself. And, and, and I'm so sorry that that happened to you.
1: Hey, Dan, this message is for the woman who called in on your last show who was sexually assaulted by a friend of hers. Having been in her almost exact situation three separate times in my life, my advice to her is to forgive herself because there's nothing to forgive herself for and to understand that she didn't make the wrong choice in having him as a friend He made the wrong choice in deciding that her body belonged to him while she was asleep and that trusting people is still something that she gets to choose to do. He didn't take that from her. He he took something else. I've lost friendships um, with men who I thought were some of my best because I had the audacity to fall asleep (laughs) with them nearby. Um, And that's, that's not on me. It's not on her. It's not on any of us. Being a woman, being asleep does not grant access to our private parts, our bodies, um, our souls, any of it. And our job is to continue to trust people and continue to love people and continue to tell ourselves as best we can that we didn't do anything wrong by breathing, by sleeping, by being alive. They did something wrong.
3: And we're gonna leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage, where you can marvel at my avatar. Follow Tickled the Movie on Twitter at TickledMovies. Follow Eric Kleinenberg on Twitter at Eric Kleinenberg. And speaking of Twitter, tangled tweets at the dentist, and the only pain relief will be the Savage Lovecast. I'll be listening to in my headphones. Will the dentist hear something inappropriate? I don't care. Hope you got through that okay, tangled. Hope you enjoyed whatever drugs you're entitled to. The Savage love cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast.